Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Afro Latinos. This is your co host, uh, Albin. My co host, Chandler, is running a couple minutes late, so he's going to j- jump in here in just a second. Um, but this week starts the series, as I said, uh, which is all about Black History Month. We're supporting Black voices black lives and all of the above and all of that that entails and so uh, today's episode is focused entirely around race in the field of education um i as an educator feel that this is something super important um and so i have brought some phenomenal phenomenal guests with me today on the show we have dr sorrell pickering and dr Kristen austin what's up guys Hey. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I will let you two decide, uh, but let the audience know who you are, where you come from, and all that jazz. So whichever would like to begin, please go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Austin. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hello. Hi, my name is Kristen Austin, and I am a higher education educator. I have been in higher education for, oh, there he is. Hello, Pamela. This is, everyone, this is the co-host. co-host there Jamie. he is. Hello, hello. Sorry I'm late. No, shame Look. you. <laughs> More for wearing that Patriot sweatshirt than for. Oh, man. Uh, it's a, it's I'd say I'd take it off, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Honesty is the best policy. <laughs> so, Cheney, uh, Dr. Austin was just, or Kristen, I don't know what you mean. I, you know, I'm trying to uh, yeah. give you a title, okay. but I don't know. Kristen, Kristen is, is telling our viewers who she is. So now you get to know since this is your first time in here also. Yes. So professionally, um, my title, what my professional title would be Dr. Kristen Austin, Representation Matters. So, of course, in certain spaces, I like to use that. But I'm just Kristen from the block. And um, I am a higher education educator and a solopreneur. So I do own a small business um, called KE Advancement Inc. It's a poly interest firm that helps individuals advance to their next level of knowledge, career or education. My passion areas is transformational pedagogy, so really inclusive curricula, um, and then I really am into inclusionary conversations, and I love college students. So that's it. And I am uh, Dr. Sorrell Pickering. You better. Uh, You all can call me what, what my mom calls me, Dr. Pickering. And um, <laughs> uh, no, just just Sorrel. Um, I am a school psychologist. Uh, oh, I got one of my cohort mates joining. How's it going, <laughs> Dr. Jacobson? Um, school psychologist in uh, Washington D.C. charter schools. Uh, originally from Staten Island, New York. Hence the Patriots' hatred. Um, got my master's in PhD. Got my bachelor's degree from Bucknell University. Master's in PhD from uh, University of Maryland College Park. Uh, been down in the D.C. area for the past uh, 10 years, um, mainly working in schools, first in Alexandria, Virginia, now in Washington, D.C. Um, my focus is on doing you know, school psychology in a way that is, um, uh, that is different, that is uh, directed at the needs of the students. So uh, my big focus is helping to develop a uh, social-emotional learning program for students who are uh, at risk to help build a connection with school so that they can benefit from what they're getting in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, working in a middle school, which is everyone's favorite Aww. group of kids, Aww. and it's never a dull moment. <laughs> <laughs> I have a middle schooler, so 
<laughs> they they really are the last to work with. I, I cannot even imagine, as I was telling Sorel and I were talking a little bit before the show started, uh, you know, my fiance wants to be a middle school English teacher. That is what she is studying at Bloomsburg, Kristen, you know, hey, our, old, our old stomping grounds. <laughs> but listen, that age is a special breed and it takes a special breed of people to be able to work with. It. I, I don't think I would survive my career if I was teaching anything less than high school. So... <laughs> Um, so, um, let's, again, this, this conversation today is all about race in the field of education. And so, um, we'll start with Dr. Pickering since, uh, Dr. Austin began the, the show. Um, so Sorrell, um, what are your experiences, especially I'm interested to hear your voice because, um, you know, you work in more of an inner city location. Hey, what's up, my man? Look at little cow. What's up, Callen? Uh, he definitely doesn't even remember, me, but that's all right. Uh, so, Sorrel, uh, talk to us a little bit about your your background um, in education as a student or as as a professional. You know, what does that look like for you, especially being in in more of an inner city location? How does your job change depending on location and you know what drew you to your field? All of the above. Yeah, um, so I grew up in, in New York City, New York City Public Schools. Uh, mom, my mom is an educator. She was a uh, English teacher for uh, for a long time. Uh, now retired and uh, enjoying her retirement. Um, I grew up actually not liking school all that much. I um, I was I was one of those students who just really didn't didn't connect with it. You know, not because. Uh, Difficulty of content, just just for whatever reason, it didn't mm-hmm. uh, didn't really click. Um, I grew up around a lot of people who were just not really connected with school, who, who didn't really uh, take things seriously. And later on down the line, through high school, college, grad school, um, something clicked with me, and something made me realize that th- for a lot of students who are um, who are disenfranchised, who are uh, living in difficult situations. Uh, for a lot of them, education is a, a starting point, a jumping off point, and a tool uh, to get out of their situations. Um, and if they're having difficulty academically, school is not a rewarding place for them. It, it's mm-hmm. not a place where you can go uh, to uh, to feel rewarded, to feel uplifted. Um, my journey through school psychology was a little bit different because uh, a lot of school psychologists are the gatekeepers to special education. So mm. that is what a lot of people's experiences with experiences with psychologists within the school uh, are. And I felt kind of dissatisfied by that. Luckily, I was able to find myself uh, through uh, a long winding road, you know, quitting grad school and then coming back and uh, having a lot of people helping me along the way connect with places who are doing things uh, in a different way, who are deploying their mental health services uh, in a way that um, that really looks at the needs of the students and finds out how to connect them with school. Uh, my dissertation research was on student resiliency, um, mm-hmm. looking at uh, the way students uh, have a, a sense of personal mastery, their ability to uh, to think of themselves as being capable uh, and their sense of relatedness, their connection with uh, resources and feeling like they have people uh, behind them who are helping them. Uh, and that's kind of like the model that I take into my work uh, every day. In, um, 
education, the one of the uh, phrases is you got you got to look at Maslow first. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, right. leads you into Bloom's Bloom's taxonomy. So Maslow mm-hmm. before Bloom, uh, before you can learn, you have to meet the needs of the students. Um, one of the things that I try to encourage in students is um, is the things that you're learning, you're learning them for a reason. So mm-hmm. uh, find ways to connect what sometimes might be dry academic content to project down five years, 10 years, 15 years, uh, and connect that with what you want to do. And I think that's incumbent on educators to help students make that connection. Yeah, I love that. And that, and I think that that's one of the things that you know, as as educators, when we go through school, we're told like a million times. I mean, the number of times that I was told Bloom's taxonomy and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I never—it's something you never really think about because a lot of times I think we think, you know, as a, as a teacher, my job is to teach the person, and all I all I'm there for. I think sometimes some of us think this way at times. And I think it it happens in every field, but you know, a lot of us think. My job is to, if I'm a math teacher, I'm going to give you this math, right? I'm going to give you these worksheets. I'm going to give you these formulas because you're going to need it. But in order for us to learn, as Maslow says, you know, they need to feel welcome. They need to feel safe. They need food. They need water. They need all of these things. They need to feel loved. And so, you know, we can't just teach content to, you know, an empty classroom because we're teaching people and people have feelings and people have emotions and people go through things and so, you know, if you're not feeling safe, if all you, that's in your mind is, you know, am I going to eat today? Am I going to have a warm bed to sleep in? You know, is my mom going to be home when I get home? You know, is my parent going to be there? You know, if I'm if that's what's on my mind, why do I care about what you're going to do? Why do I care about the, the uh, polynomials and factoring? That doesn't mean anything to me because. I have other things that I need to focus on. And so we need to remember, I think, so many times as educators that our job is teaching people first and content second. And, and so I love that, Sorrel, that that's kind of what your focus is, is on and building those relationships and those connections um, with people. Because, I mean, I just think that that's super important. Um, Dr. Austin, would you like to share your background and experiences? <laughs> so, of course I would. Um, my educational background has been privileged. So I always like to start with that. Uh, it has been very privileged and um, privilege is unearned. It was a, an environment and a family that I was born into. So I had a very um, appropriate and mobile and accessible private education a lot growing up. And then I also had very accessible mobile and um, highly resourced public school education growing up. Um, So I had access to a lot of capital, um, knowledge capital and resource capital. What are you doing? (laughs) Goodness, Carolyn, I can't see. Um, And that allowed me to go to college. So I went to Bloomsburg undergrad I got my master's degree um, at a school called Edinburgh University and then got my doctorate at a school called Immaculata University. And I really chose those um, experiences very strategically because I wanted to have exposure to a lot of different institutional types, mm-hmm. especially because I knew I was going to be working with a variety of institute, a, a variety of student types. 
Um, so I first and foremost just acknowledged the privilege um, that played into my education, the things that were very naturally afforded to me that were not perhaps afforded to others. So even talking about Maslow, um, I, where I was able to enter the pyramid, for example, was so much higher than where other individuals have been able to hire or have been able to enter and operationalize um, that pyramid. Um, but one of your questions was like, what what are some of the differences between education and settings and districts and places? Um, I'm gonna shout out funding, at, like just start there. Funding, um, and I know um, Dr. Pickering, you're not in Pennsylvania, but um, in case any of the viewers don't know, Pennsylvania um, has the least equitable funding system out of all 50 states. So the funding that is diverted toward public education as opposed to, or, or when comparing it with public education in economically secure districts is highly, highly, highly unbalanced. There's a lot of legislation on the docket right now about that in Pennsylvania. So I'm hoping that a lot of the lobbying is going a lot of the lobbying is going to make some changes there because it really starts with resources. Um, I had a mentor in grad school who said, you know, and you know, a system's priority by where they spend their money. And so where our government chooses to invest its financial resources um, is highly, highly underfunded as it relates to education. And that's not only K through 12, but also at the higher ed level, um, our public our public system, which is called the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. It's a consortium of 14 institutions, also highly underfunded. Um, so we can do a lot more. We can provide a lot of those physiological needs and things that both of you are talking about and have seen deficits, deficits in if we had more funding um, and support to do so. We haven't had it. So we find ourselves make, filling in the gaps and, and trying as hard as possible to meet those needs. but Things cost money and we just have to call a thing a thing. It's not enough to have be a passionate, talented teacher um, because passionate, talented teachers, their kids need braces too. So they need, they their kids need food as well. Hi. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's my answer to that. A little bit about my educational journey. I think I'd be remiss to not um, provide context of the lens that I'm coming from. I think that's really important. Yes, you are, Callan. Thank you for joining us, buddy. <laughs> so, um, what what was the point in your life that either? And this question is to you both. Um, but what was the point in your life that you knew I want to help students, or that I want to make a difference in the lives of students? Or why did you? Why were you drawn to education? What was that that point for you? Yeah, I think for me, it was somewhere around, um, I think college was a big turning point for me just in general. Uh, I've always been fascinated with psychology. Uh, and you know, even from, I think the, the, the Michael Crichton book, The Spear, the, one of the characters of psychology, like, oh, that is super fascinating. Uh, but it was when I went to college and the opportunity to explore different, um, different jobs, where I took a couple of different subjects, took a couple of education courses uh, and put was able to put the pieces together, uh, was able to see kind of the importance of you know, intervention on that ground level. I, I always knew that 
You know, there there were students who uh, kids who I grew up with uh, who didn't get the opportunities that that they deserved a lot of the times that, that and um, and I did. You know, there there were things that uh, my parents were on the on the lookout for uh, opportunities for me to. Uh, to sign up for that a lot of parents just didn't have that access to because they didn't have uh, the knowledge for that. Um, so, you know, if you want to help, want to help on the ground level, you want to help kids, you know, you go where the kids are, you go in the schools uh, and get in where you, wherever you can fit in. For me, it was how can I use this interest in psychology uh, to help students on a daily basis? And I kept digging until I found uh, a, hmm. A school, a job, a role where uh, where I can do that, uh, and you know the 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 fit is important to me, uh, and I've always looked at schools where uh, I could be that member of the community where the face to face time with students is more than it would be if I were in uh, a place where the psychologist is assigned to five different schools and they're going around from place to place yeah. to place. Um, I've seen districts like that, and uh, I have a list of places where I know uh, I'm not going to work for that county. Won't name any names right here because we, we need more school psychologists in general. But it was around around college where you know the pieces got put together, and uh, I saw kind of where I wanted to direct myself. And did you did you ever feel did you ever feel like you did not belong in your were, were there other school psychologists at your in your time um you know in your educative process that you know looked like you that sounded like you that shared similar experiences with you or or did you ever feel like you were the only one in your field at the time or or even in your current position are you the only one you know the only minority school psychologist in your area in the everything related to you know Let's have a question yes. for you also, Sorrell, uh, shortly. Well, you can you can answer this in a little bit. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Um, I, I will I will get to that because there's uh, being in DC. That's a that's a big oh, sure. a, a big thing. Um, sure to, to to your question, Alvin. Um, graduate school. It, it was it was an interesting time for me because psychology in general is a uh, female dominated field. A, a couple of the people who are in my cohort. Uh, I saw them uh, in the chat. Uh, hello, Jill and Megan. Uh, we had a, a lot of great experiences together. And uh, one of the things that uh, I loved about the program is that everybody came into it with different experiences, with different, uh, with different passions. And there's a, a sort of ground level things that uh, every psychologist should be able to do. Um, the you know assessment consultation with teachers, uh, but each one of us took our passions uh, into into different places. Uh, for me, one of the things that I was uh, I started out in in Alexandria, Virginia, as, as I mentioned, um, and I was a little hesitant. I did my my uh, internship in a school in Washington D.C. where mm -hmm. uh, they did have this alternative model, um, and I was hesitant going into what I consider to be uh, a suburban school because I feel like there are a lot of people whose skill sets fit better for a more traditional school psychologist role. Um, I was glad to see uh, that there were students who had the same sorts of needs that you would find in a, uh, a urban Washington DC uh, school because that's where I felt 
that my skills and my passions fit best. Um, each I was uh, one of just a, you know, a few uh, male um, school psychology uh, students in uh, in my program, and um, it was uh, one of few, a few uh, students uh, of color. Um, and I think that the um, the mentoring I got along the way really pushed me to follow after that passion. It really pushed me to uh, to notice things like that. What's the uh, the racial makeup of the classroom? What's the racial makeup of the teaching staff? And how does that uh, impact uh, impact the way that teachers inter interact with students? Um, I, I give kudos to my program because it caused me to have my eyes open to questions like that, even if the program wasn't as uh, diverse as you might find at, you know, say Howard University, which which has a school psych psychology program uh, as well. Um, it, it, it's a me method of teaching you how to think, not just this is the way things are, are typically mm -hmm. done. Wow. Uh Kristen, the same question to you in your experiences, where, um, you know, where did you feel like you fit in? Um, and I know and, and there's so many questions. And to the people who are asking questions on Facebook and on YouTube, we are going to get to those questions. I promise I'm putting people's comments in, in and out of the stream, um, but we'll save questions specifically for the end. We'll save some time to address those questions so that we don't break up the flow of conversation. So uh, Kristen, you know, can you share your experiences as an educator, as a black educator, as a black woman educator? You know, the more you, you start to tag on our identities that we all share and we find our differences, I think that we start to see, you know, different ways that we feel. So, so can you share your experiences? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, realized I always knew that I wanted to, I think the original question was when did you know you wanted to yeah, help students yeah, yeah. and so I'll blend that through this whole narrative um I when I entered college I entered as a deaf interpreting major because I thought that I wanted to um be a professional interpreter which is an amazing and very rewarding career um but as I was in the college space, I found that I wanted something that was a little bit more um, interactive for, for me. So something, and I'm going to say something that sounds really selfish, but then I'll unpack it. I actually needed something that centered me more because I am at my best when I'm influencing. So a lot of, a lot of people um, want to sound very humble and say like, it's not about me, it's about everyone else. That's fine, that's a really great way to be, but you also have to know where your gifting is. Um, and I know that um, being in spaces where I have influence and an audience is an area of opportunity to be impactful. So sign language wasn't um, aligning with that really, but I still do love the language. So then I bounced from education from being an education major to which my mom loved because she is a retired educator. Um, but I realized like, no, I cannot deal with um, education either. And then I landed in social work, which was a perfect fit um, because it really is, is rooted and grounded in the helping profession, the helping skill set, And that's where I wanted to be. Um, so weaving through all of that. And then I landed in um, because we're talking about race specifically, um, I want to emphasize how my racial identity 
did not influence any of those um, experiences. When I was mm. in college, um, race was not my salient identity, not none whatsoever. Um, and it, and it, I wasn't in a position where it had to be because I was very used to um, moving and operating and thriving in a predominantly white environment. So it, it was, I was very comfortable at the campus that I went to. I actually didn't, didn't, I won't, well, I won't say I wasn't as tuned in to the black student community. I just mm-hmm. wasn't as tuned into it because it wasn't my salient identity. It wasn't that right. you no, know, I was black, but it just wasn't my salient identity. I would say in the undergrad experience, my faith being a Christian was my salient identity. That's what really drove so many of the decisions I made and my decision to go into education. And then to put a bow on that, it actually was the mentors that I had that gave me the, the lens of higher education. So there was an individual at Bloomsburg named Dr. Irvin Wright, who was very invested in my success and my education. And I found myself wanting to um, emulate the impact that he had on students. And mm. that is what drove my path. Um, Later on, though, as I've gone through education, and now I can talk about those other identities, um, I definitely went on a self-actualization journey of my blackness and my womanness. Um, definitely found and carved out those identities to really understand and be able to articulate what it means to be black, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a black woman, what it means to be a black Christian woman, black Christian mom, black Christian wife, like all these different um, mm-hmm. intersectioning identities that really have shaped my experience as an educator. I'm constantly thinking of each of those different lenses um, and they really make a difference. But I I really wanted to highlight that our identities, um, our salient ones really do come and go in our lives. Um, And as it relates to education, um, as educators dealing with race and education, we have to make sure that we are addressing students at their salient identity. Um, and that's so important because sometimes it's not centering a, a child's uh, race or ethnicity is less important than centering the fact that they're a Muslim or centering the fact that they have a disability. We really mm-hmm. have to see what is their, what is their operating um, environment in that moment or in that school year and really address our attention there. Um, we want to make sure and be careful that we're not hyper-focusing on just race. It's so important, right? So important. Um, but my own experience in education has taught me that the identities kind of ebb and flow about what's mm-hmm. most salient. So, yeah, that's what I have to offer that. And I, and I think that that is such an important point also because I as I think back to my journey and where I, and if you've listened to previous episodes, um, we, we've talked a lot about our personal identities on the show, specifically racial and ethnic identities. Um, and Cheney and myself, you know, Cheney was born in Puerto Rico. So, you know, for him, being Puerto Rican is a big part of his life and who he is. And that's driven a lot of, of where he comes from and a lot of the way that he processes information. And for me, Kristen, like yourself, you know, I, I've grown up for the majority of my life here in Milton, Pennsylvania, you know, there is, there are not, or were not prior to the last, you know, 10 years or so, there were not a lot of people in my, in my high school, middle school, elementary school that looked like me and that talk. And so I found that my identity 
like you said, was not focused on race. You know, a lot of what seemed similar to you, Kristen, was, you know, Christian first and then came everything else. And I just happened to be black. And then there's been this whole process over the last, I would probably say, since graduation, being in college, um, you know, where I tried to figure out what that identity means to me. And that's, you know, that's where the show comes from. That's where a lot of the topics that we talk about come from is discovering and loving who I am and tapping into that. And then also allowing myself the opportunity to use that. Whereas I, I did not use it because I was blended into the background. I was a straight A for the most part, straight A student. I fit in with everyone else. I was just like everyone else. Uh, and so I never, you know, race was never the focal point of my of my career in, in my high school career. Um, and then, you know, even in, in education in college at Bloomsburg, I wasn't focused on the fact that I was a black educator in my head. I was an educator and I was just a teacher. Um, and it wasn't actually until, I don't know whether that was me just trying to, you know, use my blackness as like a one up in the application field. <laughs> but, but when I, when I applied at, at Shikalemi, um, I, noticed the population of Sunbury and noticed how that racially and ethnically diverse the, the, the population was. And I realized that not only do I want to teach, but I want to be somewhere where I'm teaching people who look and sound and talk and walk similar to the way that I do. Because I think so many times, and this is going to go a little bit off from the education perspective, just a tiny bit and just focus on race. I think a lot of times in pop culture, especially in the media portrayal of blackness, we are only ever allowed to be certain things. We are either, uh, you know, for the most part, we're slaves. You know, that's the first story that it always told whenever we talk about blackness is slaves first. Um, we always talk about the traumatic experience that is blackness and never the amazingness that it was all of these black people who have done all of these great things over their lives. Um, and so when I look at movies, when I look at music and I see, you know, we were either in the civil rights era or we were slaves and that's pretty much the only, or, or we're criminals. And that's pretty much uh, athletes and musicians. That that's pretty much all that we get to be. We're put into those boxes. And so being an educator, because I had not had a black teacher until I was in college. My freshman year of college was the first time I'd ever had any teacher who was black. Um, there was um, a teacher when I was in middle school, but then she retired and then there was none. Um, and in my school district, I, I believe I am one of three, I think, in my school district um, shout out to, to Miss Gittins at the high school. Um, but I, I believe I'm one of three black educators in our entire district. Um, and so for me, that was like, you know, this is what I want to be to show a positive experience for these black students who maybe the only times they're ever seeing blackness portrayed is in the movies where they're selling drugs or they're, they only can be athletes. They can only be X, Y, Z. And then I get lucky to also have the ability to identify as Dominican because for those students who and I and their stories are not told. The, the Hispanic and Latino population or Latinx population um, is often 
underrepresented in the social sphere also. And so I get to identify with that side of life and get to connect with those students even more because of my personal story. And so that is where, you know, I as an educator kind of delve into and just try and connect with those students. And it brings me to a topic focused in education. I mean, the one that Cheney and I have talked about, Cheney, you have something that you want to add? Go ahead, go ahead, jump in. Oh, I'm unmuted, okay. Um, now that you mentioned that about the they, they don't teach a lot of Spanish stuff or Hispanics and all that stuff, I, I I realized I haven't been in in Puerto Rico since 2010, so I haven't learned much since then. And like they don't teach us much of, about like, any of that stuff here, unless like maybe you have you know Spanish class and. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't allowed to take it. Like, they didn't let me. They gave me, you know, a French class. And I was like, okay, cool. But that's not what I wanted. So I think it would have been cool if I would have had that chance. And, and Cheney, a, a lot of that, you know, and, and your your experience and our experiences in general, I believe, as a whole, are very similar in that our stories are only told at very specific times. For the majority of, of especially high school, and I can only speak to my perspective as a high school uh, teacher, um, but I, I believe in a lot of spaces, the only times you hear black stories are right now in February. It's like you hear about everything, you hear Civil War, World War II, all of these that are predominant, and you hear what predominantly white heroes, you know, General Colin Powell gets snuck in there sometime when you talk about Desert Story. You know, we, we get our people every now and again, but then February comes. And we get we get four weeks where we get to be the focal point and we get all eyes on us, which is for a lot of us, not where we want our our attention to be. I know I did not. I had I I had one kid one time. I I had two negative experiences that made me feel black in my in my high school where like I felt my race. And I had one. I don't remember why I walked into a classroom in a middle school. This was in seventh grade. I walked into one of the classrooms. Their classroom was being rowdy. We were trying to learn. I was I happened to be sitting in the back of the classroom. And at that time, the the four classrooms were all connected. And you just had like a little opening that you could walk around to each class. And I had one student. I walked in the room because my teacher asked me to. And this kid looked at me and he said, get to the back of the bus. And for the first time, this was middle school. I was like, oh, so this is how you you see me. And I'm not even here. I didn't say anything to you. This was unprovoked. I walked in to address the teacher because my teacher asked me to do so. Why are you doing this? Like, what what is this? What is this meaning? Like, why? What was that purpose? Um, and then I had another time in high school in my sophomore year um, where we were talking. This is such a bizarre story. We were talking about Hawaii and I I was a little bit of a nerd in high school. So I just knew a lot of random information. Um, not that being a nerd is, is bad at all. You know, we think we all share some tendencies. Um, <laughs> and so um, I I happened to know a lot of useless information and our teacher asked us one thing and I, I gave an answer and the kid was like, well, of course he knows he's X, Y, Z. And I, I did not identify with that race or ethnicity whatsoever. And I was just like, 
no, I'm just not like dumb and I know stuff. Like, I don't know why, but, but it was that moment of all eyes are focused on me because I happen to have information that they didn't have. But in their mind, it was because he's black, he knows black information or because he's black in this case, he knew another minority of a Hawaiian <laughs> ethnicity right? You know, it's just this mind blowing saga, but um, Donnie Campbell brings up a good point. And this is again, something that, that we were mentioning. Um, our stories are told in February or on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Exactly. Our, our stories are isolated to February or to specific days that are targeted at black people and Cheney for a lot of Hispanics or, or Latinx people, our story stops at the Spanish-American War. We get conquistadors coming to America and the establishment of America. Um, Christopher Columbus, uh, all of those people in that era, which we know the problem, you know, we ain't going to go there. But um, we get that story. And then the Spanish-American War, where we lost Texas and California and Arizona. and And that's where our story stops. We never hear of... Uh, Except we also hear in history about the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. But again, that's not good things about our people and our stories. These are all negative, traumatic experiences. And so for a lot of minority students, our stories are told in trauma. And so I think that that is something that desperately needs to change and that needs to be focused in curriculum. And I think, Sorrel, you had mentioned your focus in, in curriculum. And if I'm saying this correctly... Um, and, and that inclusivity. And I think, Kristen, you said something similar to that. So, I mean, that is it's unfortunate that the education system is set up the way that it is, um, because I think our stories are are just not being heard appropriately. Yeah. Shout out to Mr. Campbell, one of the finest educators who I've ever, uh, ever worked with. Um, great math teacher. Um, and re really, you know, loves the kids. So shout out to you, Mr. Campbell. Um, I, I think you make a, a great point, Aubin. Who who's writing the curriculum? Mm -hmm. Who is choosing what you know figures uh, to focus on? Why why do we learn about the French Revolution and not the Haitian Revolution? You know why? You know a, a lot. Of, Come uh, on, educators. A, a trend that I've seen uh, recently is a lot of students in uh, a lot of schools in D.C. and you know, major urban areas are uh, wanting to introduce a more. Uh, Af Afrocentric, a more diverse curriculum into uh, what they're learning, which I am 100% for. I'm fine with, you know, part of teaching students of color is getting them to see value in who they are, value in right. those identities that, uh, that Dr. Austin uh, was talking about. Also, though, I think that we need more diverse uh, representative curricula in central Pennsylvania, in rural Iowa, in, in in all these other places, so that Black history isn't just a punchline. It isn't just yeah. a part of the curriculum that we could dispense with uh, once once February is over. Uh, that you know, seeing the 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 yes, the struggle, but the beauty that came out of that struggle. Absolutely. Teach about the Harlem Renaissance. Teach about uh, about the great orators um, that are Black able Wall to. Street. Black, Black Wall Street, you know, you know, teach about those things. A lot of people didn't learn about Black Wall Street until the uh, uh, the Watchmen movie. Um, there's a movie coming out, you know, it, um, very recently uh, or, or very soon, Judas and the Black Messiah, who I think is going to introduce a lot of people to uh, 
uh, Huey P. Newton and uh, um, and Fred Hampton and uh, the ways that they uh, built up a community and those communities were disrupted uh, by the government. Um, why is why are these things not in the curriculum? Not just in for students of color, but uh, for all students. Cheney, is that is that another hand? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering too. Yeah, I was um, currently blocking some view over here. Oh, okay. Because Ruby <laughs> something, but <laughs> we can high five though. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just want to say so. I teach uh, multicultural education. That's one of the classes I teach college students or grad students, and these are students who are going to be classroom educators, and so they come into the class thinking how. This is this has been my unanimous experience. They enter the class thinking multicultural education. Okay, this class is going to teach me how to work with, uh, or, or this class is going to teach me how to get black and brown or English language learners to connect with the curriculum. So that's the first thing that we have to debunk because it's not up to it's not it's not the onus is not on the students to bend to the curricula it's on the curricula to automatically include and infuse the students and right. so we i start that that's baseline like when i say to students why are you signed up for this class other than it being a requirement what do you think we're going to learn about and and that's always what it is but we have a curriculum and we need to know how to get the black brown english language learners to to lean in and and so debunk that right away Second, when I asked them, um, when I asked the students, what would be your plan for including multicultural education into your different lessons and ideas? Automatically, unanimously, the students will have a lesson plan. At the end, they will add something that has to do with diversity, equity, or inclusion. And then we have to strip that away. And I'm okay with it. That's what learning is for. This is where I want you to make the mistake. So you don't make it with right. Pedro. You don't make it with Lily in the class. Like make it here. Okay. And so what I hope that I help them to do is diversity, equity, and inclusion should never, ever be an add on. Start with that at the top and then build your curriculum from there. Mm. So if you're going to do a storybook hour, just make sure, and obviously this is grade specific, but if you're going to read a story, choose a diverse author, choose a book that's in multiple languages, choose a book where the um, the illustrator is a person of an underrepresented identity. I think that individuals that go through teacher preparation programs that are largely whitewashed and largely sterile, uh, have wonderful intentions, but have not been taught the appropriate way to provide an inclusive curriculum. Because if we do this right, K through 12, we can get to a point where diversity and inclusion um, is such a seamless integration. How many months are we in school? Nine months out of the year that when we have Black History Month and Latino History Month, it's just a celebration versus an education. Because right. we try to make it an education once a month, and that's just so ineffective. We really could be doing it for the entire school year and then celebrating it. That Because we say, like, celebrate Black history, celebrate yeah. it. We're, yeah. we're not celebrating it. We're really educating. That's what we're doing. And mm -hmm. we're trying to confine it to that small space. Um, and there was one other thing I was going to say, but it slipped in my mind. Oh, the other reason, um, when when students are engaged in class, I tell them, I don't blame you. I don't blame you because the curriculum is dry. 
The curriculum is boring. I could be the best educator there is, but the curriculum is not engaging. You can't help it. They're not the teacher. They're not mm -hmm. the school district. They're not the curricula writer. So they can't help it that school is not enticing, that the, the walls are white and it feels very, there's very much a prison industrial complex. They can't help that, but we can. Mm -hmm. And we can make it so that students see themselves represented throughout their entire K through 12 experience. So they actually feel a part of education rather than, like we said, an add on at the end. Because it, if we make them think they don't belong in the, the education space, then why would they connect with it? Where's the buy-in? Where, where is the reason for them to get excited to come to school to learn about George Washington when they could learn about George Washington Carver? So it, there's just such an important, um, such an intentionality behind education that can really make a huge difference. And it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't right. even cost a lot. We just have to be willing to do it. And I, and that brings me to, uh, there's a, so many thoughts going through my head and so many, and that's why this conversation is so interesting and why it was at the forefront of my mind. And this, a lot of the things that you both have said are things that I think and feel um, every day. And I'm so glad we get to share this space to be able to, to share these concerns. Uh, Dr. Austin, this is to you. Um, I, I think that as the, um, that we need to also debunk or debunk rather, I'm sorry, the theory that diversity, if, if we, hear the word diversity, there is a connotation that that word carries. And the first thing, if we close our eyes and ask you to describe diversity, you your first thought is black and white. So if I ask you to talk about the diversity of a, uh, of a classroom, you're going to go and look around and see, okay, how many white students do I have? How many black students do I have? How many brown students do I have? But there is so much more to diversity that doesn't get talked about. You have racial, ethnic diversity. You have socioeconomic status differences. You have uh, gender identity, sexual orientations. You have, you know, political affiliation. You have religious affiliation. Ability. Ability and inability. And there is the only thing that we focus on when we talk about diversity is black or white. And so we need to understand that there is more to that. And so yes, we need to, to adjust the curriculum to represent every person at every time, always. And so I, I did it in my undergrad. It, I don't remember what course it was, but I remember um, an exercise that I did when we had to do a little micro teaching unit. Um, and it was our focus. I got lucky because this is a topic I love to talk about is diversity and diversity issues. Um, I got lucky that that one was assigned to me and my group or whether that was on purpose. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure, <laughs> but either way I was fine with it because it, it allowed me the opportunity in, in the exercise I had on the screen um, four pictures. One was uh, I think they were two twins uh, they were both white. They were twins. I had another picture um, where there was a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural classroom of various colors, skin tones. Um, and I don't remember what every picture was, but I polled the class. And in that poll, um, the poll was basically which picture shows the most diverse classroom or the most diversity. Overwhelmingly, the decision was 
the one that had the Asian student, the black student, the, the white student. And that was their thinking because their entire lives, all that they've ever heard about diversity was what you look like on the outside. And I said to them something akin to um, diversity is everything that makes you you. And so even in the picture of the twins, they are identical twins. Yes. They grew up in the same house. Yes. They looked like each other. Yes. But even inside of each other, there are differences that they cannot possibly share because each individual person and their experiences are going to be different. Um, and, and so I think that that is step one in education is to really show what diversity is and how beautiful it is when it's addressed appropriately. Um, last, uh, last summer during the, you know, hope the, the protests and Black Lives Matter movements and there was all this racial tension, it seemed like in the, in the world or in the United States, um, my principal, addressed myself and the other black teacher in the high school and pulled us in um, for a meeting. To And, and I think that I, I had two feelings about this. It was one, um, thank you for seeing me for who I am and respecting my voice. And two, this conversation should have happened probably before now, just because there's things happening. This is not necessarily the time. These problems should be addressed beforehand. But basically the conversation was, how do we make our school more inclusive to everyone so that, you know, on day one, when we come in, we don't have these concerns where, you know, we have the population of black students who don't feel like they belong or, or why are the, I think some of the questions that came up in conversation, why are the Hispanic students and the minority students in general, why aren't they participating in school activities? Why do they not feel school pride? And a lot of it simply is because they don't feel like they belong. And so the conversation came about of, you know, how do we make our school a more inclusive environment for all? And we had some really fantastic conversation. I'm so thankful that I was able to share that space and that opportunity to have that conversation because it made me feel validated that the purpose that I was, the purpose I felt like why I was at this school and why I was hired at the school was kind of being realized. And so that kind of self-actualization came upon me and it was like, okay, this is where I want to do. This is where I want to focus. Um, and now COVID has kind of ruined everything that we have tried to do. And, you know, we wanted to, um, we, we started a diversity club. That was the initial intention. Um, but again, even in creating a diversity club, we recognized and knew when people hear the word diversity, they're turned off by it because they're going to think, one, this is just for the black and brown students, or two, this is where we go to berate the white students and why the white students don't matter and that their feelings are not important. And so by the end of things, I made a simple change. Instead of the diversity club, it became you matter because yes, you might be able to say that diversity club is not important because it, whatever your excuse for that is, but who can really say that you don't matter. And in a you matter situation in a, in a, in a, in a place, in a space where everyone knows you matter, everyone's voice can be heard because you matter. And so, and I just feel like this is something that needs to change in every system everywhere. And that this education, again, 
is so important to be able to change the hearts and minds of young lives. Because if we can get them now, while their minds are still, you know, in, in, and even up to the college age, it is much easier to change the minds and thought processes of a younger adolescent brain and as a developing brain than it is to someone who is 40, 50 years old who has already lived and had their experiences because that's all they have to draw on. It's so much harder to change those minds. So if we can get them young, we can make a world of difference. All right. That was a long diatribe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I think without that, it's, it's stifling the people's development. It, it's causing them to see the world in, in a truncated way. Um, and it, it, it really cascades down into, you know, these are the, the students who are growing up seeing this world in this one, this, this one way are becoming the teachers of the future and don't know how to negotiate that, don't know how to, when they find themselves uh, in a school where there's a, there's a large population of, uh, of Latino students and Latino parents, you know, reflecting on their own practice and asking, you know, what message does it send that, all of my emails to parents home are in English and I'm not making the effort to get paperwork sent home in Spanish. Um, these students who are, you know, from yeah, the large population of Ethiopian students here in the DC area, you know, do we have an Amharic translator within the school district that can mm. communicate to parents in a way that they understand. And if we do communicate uh, in their best language, it's sending the message that they matter. It's sending the message that this is a place where you belong, where we're not going to run things by you. We want you to connect to the school. It, mm -hmm. It's it, 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 We have to change the way that we think, not just in the classroom, but on an administrative level, uh, on the level of you know administrators allowing, not only allowing, but encouraging these kinds of conversations to happen within the class. So, uh, you know, Brian asked about the, you know, the, the Black Black Lives Matter protests. Um, you know, we had a lot of those conversations here in the D.C. area because, you know, my school is, you know, a couple miles from the White House where a lot of the protests were happening. And you know, myself and a lot of my coworkers were involved in some of the, the protests, um, but places which are farther disconnected from these larger urban areas where it was happening. What conversations are they happening in the classroom? Do those students understand why these protests got sp got sparked? Do they understand the nature of policing in America? And are, are they able to trace the history of that back to where, um, back to what caused it? Right. Uh, real quick, Sorrel, we're going to continue this conversation. Um, Kristen has to go. She's got some prior commitments. But uh, Kristen, thank you so much for joining. Uh, this has been incredible. And we're going to continue the conversation without you, unfortunately. Yeah. Tune into the live and, and you can continue with the, with the conversation if you're able. But do you have any parting thoughts before you head out? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, would, I would say anytime you hear that perhaps a curriculum is going to be infusing diversity and inclusion, um, lean into it. Don't automatically get defensive. Um, I think that a lot of parents and families of privilege um, get defensive when they hear that suddenly 
we're going to be adding a district or school is going to be adding um, diversity and inclusion into the curricula. But I, I remind uh, families, sort of to your point, Aubin, you do want your children to know how to engage with individuals that use assistive technology. You do want your children to know how to engage um, in a global society. And that's what a diversity and inclusion curriculum um, really is is designed to do. It's not indoctrination, um, it's awareness building, it's education. And what we do at home as families and parents or caregivers, and I know it's, it's um, family st structures are different everywhere, um, is to provide education as well. So that's what I would leave everyone with because it's diversity in education is so important. So yes. thank you all. Thank you so much for joining. <laughs> Hopefully we can have you back to continue the conversation. Yes. Howlin, we're going to have to have you back too. All right. All right. Deal. Pleasure to meet you, Dr. Austin. You Thanks, too. Bye-bye. All right. Where were we? <laughs> Uh, is this is this Dr. Campbell? By the way, is that is this a, the appropriate title, Sorrel? Um, don't know if you've got your PhD since the last time we talked, Mr. Campbell. But well, Mr. Campbell, thank you so much for all of your comments. You, your your conversation is right on with us, and we appreciate you so much. And thank you to everyone else who is uh, commenting and joining in this conversation on Facebook or on YouTube. So I will just pull up the comment again. Um, Sorrel, for you to address, maybe we can just keep going with the conversation. I mean, there's a couple other questions in the chat that I'll bring up also. Um, but the question is, can you speak to the current climate related to Black Lives Matter and impact upon education? So for you specifically, you're going to have a, a better idea of it for your area being in D.C. Can you just readdress really quickly um, uh, how this has um, changed or affected your education and the uh, processes behind that education. Yeah, this, this is a, a super fascinating place to to, to work in the Washington D.C. area, uh, especially this year. Uh, also dating back to uh, kind of the, the origins of the the Black Lives Matter protests when uh, some of the uh, police uh, violence started to be recorded and started to be uh, uh, started to be uh, nationalized. Um, at the at the time, uh, around the time of uh, of Mike Brown and some of the other um, incidents that sparked the, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, I was you know, working in in Alexandria, and I don't think that they had the ability to at, at the time. There weren't a lot of resources to be able to uh, engage the students as well. Uh, as as it is now, uh, and mm -hmm. some of that, as, as I mentioned, has to do with the the leadership. What kind of emphasis um, does the leadership put on it? Do they have the boldness to take some time to reflect on the current trend? Not trends in society because it's not a trend. Some of the uh, the, the the way that the culture is going uh, when there's a Black Lives Matter week. Um, are they taking it seriously and equipping their teachers who uh, at the time when I was working uh, in Alexandria were majority white, um, giving them resources to be able to uh, to talk about it? Or is it just uh, a token effort? 
Um, mm-hmm. the, the school where I am now uh, in Washington, D.C., um, there is uh, we do a, a great job, in my opinion, and not only uh, addressing and pressing our students to think about the Black Lives Matter protests that started years back and are ongoing until now, um, pressing them to think about the reasons why, what are some of the triggers that caused it to happen? What are some of the historical precedents dating back to not just the civil rights movement, but other uh, other uh, initiatives and other movements for freedoms in America and, and in other countries? Um, something that very recently, just in, in the last month, that um, with the incidents that happened at the Capitol building, um, me being a DC transplant, um, I was reflecting on the fact that I'm, you know, I'm very much, you know, I've been down here since 2007. Um, these are this, their students, these students' homes. Mm-hmm. So things that impact their ability to move around um, due to the things that happened at the Capitol by people who largely came in uh, from outside. You know, Washington DC isn't just a political center. It's the, uh, the home the, for a lot of black and brown people for generations uh, and their lives are now disrupted, subject to increasing uh, policing. Uh, stat that I just saw this morning was uh, Washington, D.C. is one of the most disproportionate places uh, for black and brown people, not only for police arrests, but for police killings. Hmm. Um, and, you know, my students are, are you know, old enough to really start being being able to reflect on that and are being impacted by that. Uh, so being able to ask them questions like what what are the compare and contrast the uh, protests uh, and the uh, storming of the Capitol on the 6th to what we saw happening over the summer. Uh, what are some of the things that, uh, that can make this society more fair and equitable? Uh, what are some of the impacts of having police in schools? Um, does that create more safety or does it cause more black students to be arrested while at schools? Um, does it cause things that should be disciplinary issues to turn into uh, into legal matters? Um, mm. Those are some of the questions that we're able to ask, and I think that some of the policymakers need to ask also. Mm. Um, I am pretty much adamantly opposed to any policing in schools because uh, of the message that is sent police at schools, the message mm-hmm. that it sends to students uh, and the, the effects on discipline. Um, what are our disciplinary policies that suspiciously mimic the criminal justice system where mm. it's mm. offense, crime and punishment? Uh, and why do we see some of the disparities in discipline for black and Latino students versus white students? Why do we see some of the disparities in special education um, between black and Latino students and white students? And what trickle effect does that have down the line to the opportunities that they're afforded afterwards, the um, able to access AP classes, the able to um, the ability to get recommendations from their teachers that will lead them mm-hmm. to college. Um, so I think that a, a, a microscope has been put on the uh, criminal justice system within due to the Black Lives Matter movement, but. Um, 
it matters more than just when when people are uh, in the streets and wondering why this police car has been circling the neighborhood, you know, yeah. every day for the past, you know, for the past five years. Uh, it matters in the way that policies affect students and their ability to learn and whether or not they're allowed to mm -hmm. be in the classroom or outside the classroom. So we, and you brought up a good point and this is a great transition point to uh, the next question. Um, but I'll just, I'll just jump in really quickly because you, you talked about uh, your feelings towards policing in a school um, and how that kind of shapes and molds and, you know, has an effect on students and their thought processes. The, the school district that I work in um, now, just last year, implemented the police force. And so our our district has, I believe at this point, we only have one officer. Um, last year, we had two. And it was really interesting um, that, that our police chief in our school district um, is a, a white man. Um, our his, his second in command, I suppose, the other officer has now moved on from the district. Um, but he was a Puerto Rican man, I think, born and raised in New York. Um, and so that was interesting to see even the difference between their behavior. Um, one as a, you know, as the white, as a white male police officer, one as a Hispanic police officer who's worked in Philly and Jersey and how they operated differently, but also the initial reaction to having police in the schools. And even, I, I won't share too many details because, you know, the, the forum, but um, I, I, there were instances that I witnessed altercations with students and police that were unfortunately disproportionately um, negative, especially with those minority students. I, in fact, I, I can say it like this. I saw zero negative physical interactions between a white student and a police officer Whereas I saw several students who were at least placed in or who were restrained, um, who were minority students. And so, you know, th there is so much that goes on when thinking about police in schools. And I get it. It's a safety concern. We want our students to be safe because we know the world is crazy and things are crazy and people are crazy. But to what end and to if we're thinking about Maslow going back to the hierarchy of needs, which I shared on the screen, I don't know if you, anyone saw it earlier, but um, for those of you who are not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, but it, you know, you cannot learn if you or don't feel safe. And so how many people in their daily lives fear for their lives because of altercations with family members from police, from their own instances at their homes with police, how many people fear for their lives when they interact with police? And then you introduce that into a school building and that's an automatic trigger for a lot of traumatic and negative emotions. And so that is unfortunate because then again, you are pushing back, um, you know, someone's learning process and impeding their, their learning. Um, and so you talked Sorel about um, policies um, and there was a question from Steven here you go. Uh, what policies should we implement to address the psychological stress of both COVID-19 and the pandemic, as well as potentially systematic racism on students of color? Sorrel, uh, would you like to jump in? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there's kind of a, a, a 
a lot of things going on. I'll, I'll address the pandemic first because there's a lot of kind of things going on uh, in uh, in Baltimore and uh, in Chicago. Um, there are very important competing needs where there's a difference between um, kind of the teachers and administration and uh, in the, the school board about when it's safe to to, to re-enter the school. Um, I would say this regarding COVID that everybody wants to be in the building. And teachers, students, like they, they want it, they need it. There's a lot of students who um, don't have that sense of relatedness when they're at home because not only was the school their social space, it was their safe haven, it was uh, the place where they uh, are able to connect with the adults that can that, that can speak to them, that could uh, nurture them, that can inspire them. Um, and it's difficult to do within uh, within a virtual setting. Like you, you can't, you mm -hmm. know, give someone dap over uh, over the screen and teachers are yeah, trying their best. It <laughs> does not work the same way. It just doesn't. You know, one one of my favorite things to do when I'm not either counseling a student or testing a student, I walk the hallways during during transitions. I uh, I check in with students th throughout the day, even the ones that I'm not um, that that I'm not officially assigned mm -hmm. to be working with. Um, it, it's part of you know becoming a, a, a community. Um, and with, you know, with regards to the the, the pressures of you know systemic racism, I, I think that we should assume that students are looking at the world with their eyes open. Um, a lot of times, we um, well, let me not let me not generalize, but um, you can make the assumption that student students are ignorant of the world around them and, and what's going on, uh, what's going on around them, but. When there's you know a massive protest outside of the White House, the students are seeing it on on the news, are seeing mm -hmm. it on social media. You got to be able to have that conversation with them and talk to them uh, about uh, about what's going on in the world, um, and not mimicking those same systems within the school. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I mentioned that a lot of times our school discipline can look like what happens when you break the law outside of school and, right. you know, exclusionary discipline, suspensions, expulsions, that is basically taking the lessons from the judicial system and trying to apply it to students rather than building a, a, a safe community of growth mm -hmm. where, um, you know, if your school has a police officer there, you know, SRO, student, res uh, student resource officer, do they have a counselor? A psychologist, a nurse, uh, are the students able to get their basic needs met? Uh, when a teacher sees a student that is uh, angry and uh, and having difficulty, um, is your first call to that police officer? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. There, there's so much stress that students are students are under that, um, like I mentioned, for a lot of students school is not a rewarding place uh, and the students who have behavioral problems they're pegged as the bad kid right um one of the things that i've loved i've worked in a school for five years and i and i got to see the growth not just from month to month and week to week uh but year to year and being able to see a student uh who was you know 
throwing kids on the ground and body slamming them in second grade, by the time he's in sixth grade, you know, he's able to use the talents and the skills that he has within the classroom. Mm -hmm. And yes, sometimes he does have anger problems. Sometimes he does uh, have difficulty with self-regulation and his sixth grade student, his sixth grade teacher doesn't know what he was like in second grade and the tremendous progress that he's made. Um, I I think the, the, that it's incumbent on uh, everybody who works in the school to be able to, build the school in a community in, into a community which is valued by students and teachers where uh, where emotions are talked about on a daily basis where when there are behavioral incidents that those situations are repaired and not just punished yeah. um, and that student is restored back to being uh, a valued and seen as a viable valued member of that community by themselves by their peers and by the teachers and not just i've got my eye on you you have a behavior yeah. plan yeah. let's start gathering data so we can put you in the yeah. the, the program for students I, who identify you been. as this what well, yeah exactly yeah. um there's even if there's not a formal label in a lot of teachers minds that label is on that kid uh and yeah there, there, there's so many ways that, you know, as we're thinking of going back, how do we treat a student who uh, is having difficulty wearing mm-hmm. a mask all day because they're just a fidgety student? Right. Do we start suspending students for that? Do we right. say, oh, no, you're not allowed to be in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to do virtual learning. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're not careful and I, I'm not – Huge into the idea of implicit bias, but the way that a lot of teachers uh, studies have shown that they have difficulty interpreting the the emotions of black and Latino students, like just being able to look at their face and processing what emotion they're feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something about their perception being off Um, the inability to to understand uh, how they communicate anger. Um, Does a does a teacher know? the vernacular of the community that they're serving and yeah. uh, know when the student is having an appropriate expression of frustration and when they're being disrespectful. Uh, and those kinds of judgment calls often come at the expense of uh, black and brown students. Right. Wow. There's so much to unpack, and I feel like we could be here for another six years uh, talking about every because every time another topic comes up, another thought comes up, and then there's so much more to think about, and and the conversation is endless. And so, Sorrel, we have time for one final question, um, and this comes from Brian Johnson. Uh, do you think there is a solution to changing the pipeline for Black, Brown, Latino? Um, minority teachers? Is there a solution to changing that field, to to integrating more educators like that? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that the, you know, it, it goes back to what I said, you know, brought me into the education field in general. At some point I saw that the schoolhouse was a place of, of value. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I think that the more we can 
you know, there's a the um, you know, the, the Malcolm Gladwell book Outliers, where you know it talks about you know, the, the a lot of people take away from that the ten thousand hour rule, where it takes ten thousand hours in order to uh, to master something. But that's actually yeah. not the point of the book. One of the points of the book is that uh, for all of these people who who had talent, who was able to dedicate themselves, they got that break to be able to um, to be able to see where to apply their skills. Uh, I think that the, the more that we can put students in a position where they see schools as a place of value and can identify the, the, like there's this one teacher, this teacher believed in me. This teacher right. helped make me who I am. This teacher gave me my break. They were, you know, when, uh, when I got in a fight, they were the teacher that sat down and talked to me instead of immediately asked for me to get a 10 day suspension. Mm -hmm. um, they were the teacher that inspired me uh, through their lesson. They, they were the teacher that introduced me to this realm of education that, I, that I've never heard of before. Um, I think that connecting students with their schools, connecting them with their education, um, not just while they're in school, but, but beyond that, that um, you had help along the way um, how can you feed back into the next generation? And it might not just be uh, through through teachers, through being mentors, through being you know coaches. Uh, I, I think that that's a that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the other thing is just in society, seeing teachers as people who's who who are people of value, um, who are people who uh, who. You know how many teachers uh, are not only working during school but after school hours on the weekends, uh, and you know we, we use the narrative of you know teachers are heroes, therefore we expect them to sacrifice. But you know teachers are heroes, therefore we're going to honor them through you know not cutting their salary, not cutting their budget, not forcing them to come out of pocket for uh, classroom expenses. Um, I think that when when teachers are, are, are viewed and treated as valuable as, you know, doctors and lawyers and students are able to go through school, um, seeing people who look like them pouring back into the community and being treated with the respect that they deserved. And I say this, you know, not, not as a teacher, I have a fancy title and, you know, <laughs> I've, 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 I've got, a, I've got a doctor in front of my name, my name, but you know, the teachers are, are the, are the organs that, keep the school moving and mm -hmm. we should treat them as such. And we, we should make sure that we're you know, honoring them appropriately with, with their respect and, you know, administrators mm -hmm. not viewing them as the adversary. Right. Um, you know, parents, you know, talk to your students about, you know, th this is, these are the kinds of impacts that a teacher uh, can have. Um, what are some things that, you know that 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 you want to give back to that. Now, I, I think it's it's a multifaceted um, solution. If if I had the uh, the, the the solution, I, I think that I'd be in higher education rather than <laughs> you know, working on the ground. Um, yeah. I, I know that the for me, what caused me to go into education instead of doing something like, you know, starting a private practice or, or you know, working for uh, an organization was seeing, reflecting on, on my own, 
you know, upbringing, seeing education as uh, as one of the linchpin ways of mm-hmm. uh, of of building up the community, uh, and, and maybe that's it. You know, building the communal aspects, the, the communal ethos within our students, that you're not mm-hmm. just an individual trying to attain the American dream, but uh, when one of us succeeds and we all succeed, and when uh, when we're able to you know, speak back to the neighborhood, speak back to the community, and yeah. um, be that person that propels it forward. Uh, it's the community ethos that, you know, drove Black Wall Street. It's the community ethos that, you know, drove movements uh, for uh, for freedom and rights. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, educator, Agreed. psychologist. Yeah, I'm a, I'm... <laughs> seven, seven days a week, you know, yeah, we. As a matter of fact, and you you said Sorel that like a lot of teachers are working, you know, on weekends, and I was literally working today right before we started the broadcast. I got done at three, like two thirty, three o'clock. I got done with work, jumped right on here. While I was at work, I saw one of my students. So it just, you know, this is not, and, and you know, there's still that relationship, and that's it's kind of cool to see students outside of the uh, and see their actual lives and how they live outside of how they react in a classroom because again, people are people. And so people are going to act differently in different spaces. And so, you know, I think that this is just all encompassing and a conversation for forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I could talk about this for, for, for a long time. I'm, I'm grateful that uh, the um, representation among teachers is a, a point of emphasis. I'm grateful to uh, teacher education programs who are, building in diversity and inclusion into their educational training programs. Uh, I'm grateful to those who are teachers now who are actively recruiting uh, black and brown teachers. Um, I I, I think that, you know, things like that, apprenticeship programs, making, Mm -hmm. um, you know, streamlining, you know, teacher um, certification programs uh, and helping them, helping people see, that this is a, a, a cause worth fighting for. This is uh, a, a viable option for you, and it's something that uh, that helps build the foundations of the community and, and propels uh, everybody forward. I, I think that there's uh, that has gone and has gone and will go a long way uh, to building more diversity in our in our teaching ranks. I agree. Well. I think before we end up being here all day, every day, Sorrel, this is a great place to to end the show. Uh, Sorrel, thank you so much for joining. And again, a big thank you to Dr. Kristen Austin, who was with us. Um, it had to had to go a little bit ago, but um, uh, Mr. Campbell has something else to, to add for you there, Sorrel, just as a reminder for you. Um, oh, I, I I love seeing your updates on Facebook about the uh, about the Maya kids. I still have some some connection with uh, with, with Maya Angelou, the school where uh, I did my internship. Still in contact with my old supervisor there. In fact, I just saw him yesterday, um, and it's great to see you know. And you know, Mr. Campbell, if I could talk him up a little bit more, that that's. Uh, a model of what a lot of educa- urban educators and educators uh, in uh, majority black and brown students do, that they're not just in the classroom, but they're in the lives of the students. And the mm-hmm. students see that and they value mm-hmm. that. And it's uh, an example of what makes somebody a great 
uh, educator. It's it's why a lot of teachers burn out, but it's the you know it, it's the thing that um, you know it, it's it's a passion. It's a calling. It's uh, something that uh, that wakes us up the next morning mm-hmm. to want to come mm-hmm. into school despite. Uh, some of the difficulties. So, as much as uh, I want Mr. to Cable walk out being, every day, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's, um, and, and this is the last thing I'll say. I was at a a, a convention last year before COVID started, um, uh, a conference where um, I was going to different workshops, and I kind of broke them out down into three categories. Uh, some of them were for application things that would come the um, coming on Monday and change the way I practice. Uh, some of the sessions were for aspiration, things I aspire to do a year, two years down the line, and some of them were for inspiration. What makes wakes me up the next morning? Uh, mm-hmm. What's going to keep me in the field ten years down the line? Amen. I love it, Sorrel. Thank you so much for joining the show today. This has been an amazing episode. I, I'm so glad we got the the chance to have this conversation. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Chandler. Um, anytime. You, you you know how to get in contact with me. Appreciate you, big man. Thank you. Uh, and this has been another episode of Afro Latinos, our first live episode. So thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate you for joining us. We look forward to doing this again. Um, you can check the formal broadcast if you did not get to watch the live. Of course, you can catch us on our Facebook page, which is Afro Latinos. You can find us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple podcast, anywhere, all of that fun stuff. Um, You can also find us at our YouTube channel, Afro Latinos. Um, So check us out, like, subscribe, comment. Thank you to everyone who has been a a part of our show today. Um, This has been your co-host, Alvin. Yeah, no, Cheney, you forgot. I should probably (laughs) unmute myself for this one. (laughs) This has been your co-host, Alvin. (laughs) And Chandler. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. Oh.